universe began, light has remained unchanged. Now man has created a new kind of light with powers and properties unlike anything that existed before. Laser light. Hey everyone, welcome back to the OX2C podcast. I'm Ryan. Hey everyone, welcome back. And to this is John, my co-host here. Uh, so last time we went over a little recap. We went over mRNA vaccinations and um, the mRNA ingredients, which I brought to the table. And then John talked about the PICJO, which just was about uh, cultivating stem cells using this certain gel called PIC. So if you guys are interested in that, go ahead. We did record it, so it's on YouTube if you guys did miss that recording. Um, but yeah, so we're going to go straight into John's articles for today. And... Uh, yeah, so go, John, go ahead and, and take it away. All right. Thank you so much for the uh, wonderful introduction. So uh, last week, uh, Ryan kind of sort of, uh, Ryan did a wonderful job talking about how these uh, mRNA vaccines work. And sort of continuing on the steam from that last podcast, I wanted to also do a little more research into uh, some of the latest developments with uh, COVID-19. So I have for you, Ryan, um, here, let's see. So y you're familiar with like, how different people have very different symptoms to COVID-19, right? Yeah, somewhat. It all varies between person to person. Right. Like it, some people have no effect whatsoever. And, and some people, you know, become deathly ill. I mean, you know, they, um, you know, they have to get sent to the ICU, um, hooked to a respirator, you know, some very, very uh, severe symptoms. But you're just aware, like, it's, it's very variable, right? And also it depends on, like, I think the allergic reactions on people. So, like, you know, some people are allergic to peanut butter versus people are allergic to almonds. Oh, really? So you're saying, like, there's proof that maybe pre-existing allergic conditions could worsen this? or All I'm saying is that people react differently to this vaccination. You know, everyone is going to react differently. Just as everyone oh, has the their own. Yeah, to the vaccine okay. has their own allergic reactions to everything else. Okay. No, that's, a, that's a, um, an excellent point. But um, I think the article that I have... Um, for us today, uh, talks about uh, more specifically why the virus itself, um, you know, for some people causes no symptoms and, and causes serious illness or uh, death in others. So uh, this comes from SciTech Daily. Um, and according to the Translation Genomics Research Institute, it's uh, quite a mouthful, um, <laughs> it's an affiliate uh, for the City of Hope, they've actually identified a gene that might be able to explain um, why it is that the uh, variation in symptom intensity is for most people. And it isn't, uh, this gene isn't from the virus, it's in humans. So, so you know, you might have a different version of this gene um, than I do. And uh, Ryan, what was the last time you took AP Bio again? I, I, oh. I think we laughed over this. It was like, I, I think it was around four years or something. Yeah, uh, it was the junior year of my high school. Junior year, okay. So, yeah, I think about four years from now. Nice. Well, it's, it's good. You know, we have some knowledge of biology. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Uh, so anyway, there's this, uh, there's a, this gene produces something called MIR1307. So, you know, it's like another joke. Um, I guess the running joke for us is like how terribly scientists seem to name some of these things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At the, least for... I feel like the more I've researched into uh, gene, gene names, uh, like space telescopes, what they name them, the, the more bizarre the names become. Yeah, they go they go pretty um, they go pretty crazy with that kind of stuff. But uh, basically, there's um, this, this gene, so it produces a molecule of DNA. Um, uh, uh, it's called MIR1307, um, and, and it serves as a kind of switch that uh, turns various genes within the virus itself 
um, on or off, which uh, makes the disease have um, varying severity. And it can control things like how quickly the um, virus reproduces. So I remember in your last podcast, we, we kind of had a, a quick overview of the biology, like, like how the whole transcription thing works. And you remember back then, we didn't quite remember like did mRNA, like, you know, which way it went. Well, I think, I think before I go any further, um, how about we kind of clarify that real quick um, for our viewers? How does that sound? That sounds, that sounds great. All right. So, it. so I think um, I, we got to start like every cell in our body has like a, well, red blood cells don't have nuclei, but, but most, you know, the large majority of our, our uh, body cells have a nucleus and that nucleus um, contains, oh, oops, let's see. Okay. I'll keep that. So that nucleus contains a genetic material inside of it. And there's an enzyme called RNA polymerase. And what it does is it kind of looks at that DNA strand and it spits out that mRNA strand. And the mRNA strand kind of you know, goes out of the nucleus and it's inside the rest of the cell. And that's where our ribosomes come in. And the ribosomes read the mRNA and they figure out the proteins, like which proteins need to be combined or amino acids need to be combined to create proteins. I think, I think that's a, a decent explanation. I mean, <laughs> yeah, no, that, that that's perfect. Honestly, that sounded very similar to the things I had to regurgitate to my to my teacher, RNA polymerase oh and all that stuff. The the five, what is it like five three? Right, like the leading and lagging strand and right. Oh man, yeah, it's uh, but uh, yeah. So I think I think that's just enough to figure out what this article is about. Um, so this um, piece of DNA, um, this I'm just call, I'm just going to call it um 1307. Um, is also found to affect the severity of, of certain cancers, um, lung disease, and flu, such as H1N1. So it's not just for COVID, but it's been uh, historically noticed, like it has, it has effects on other kinds of uh, diseases as well, which I thought was um, pretty interesting. So there's, it's, 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 there's already some existing precedent for how it works, but um, it's just now been recently been shown to have like an effect. Uh, so this, there's a team led by Nicholas Stork. So he's sort of the director of TGen's quantitative medicine and systems biology division. And what they did was that uh, in order to find this little piece of DNA, they actually compared different kinds of coronaviruses. So mm. um, were you aware uh, of like the fact that we call it the V coronavirus, but actually it's like a whole family, right? Right. I, as much as I know, uh, it started with the, like the SARS and it's sort of just like a, like a branch off of what we know from from this like the the hierarchy of stars and COVID nineteen and there's like different strains. Right, no, you're you're um, you're pretty much on. Uh, you, you hit it on the uh, on the head there. Uh, I'm not certain chronologically if SARS is like the, the precursor for all of them, but mm -hmm. I think like the family of viruses has been around um, for for ages. I think and and what happened is you know SARS can uh, is sort of like gain prominence uh, considering the prior pandemics and. Um, there's, but it's a whole family. So the, the coronavirus is a whole family. Uh, and COVID-19 is just one of the members of that large family. So what they did was they looked at different versions of the, uh, of the coronavirus um, mm -hmm. across different species as well. So not just humans, but animals. And, and, uh, and they looked at the, D the DNA sequences and they found this, um, this piece of DNA or how this gene can actually affect uh, its behavior. Uh, now, the reason it's called sort of miRNA uh, is because mm. it stands for uh, micro microRNA. Oh, so huh? Wait, so the so the, for like just typical mRNA, not the miRNA. Um, uh, no, go ahead. Sorry. Like, what, what's the difference between mRNA and then miRNA? 
Okay, that's an excellent question. It, it leads right into exactly what I wanted ah, to um, <laughs> to explain. Yeah, um, we all we all love a good transition. So mRNA is responsible for like you know generating. It, it tells the ribosomes in our cells how to manufacture those proteins. But it's only been recently, like I think within like the past two decades, that we figured out that miRNA regulates mRNA expression. So what miRNA literally does is it sees the mRNA and it can bind to certain sites of the mRNA and prevent or regulate um, the expression of certain genes. So oh. it acts as kind of a, a suppressing mechanism um, for certain parts of our DNA. Okay, wait, so, so, so the story doesn't just end with mRNA. miRNA is, is also part of this, like, this story that I guess I, I haven't... I haven't heard about miRNA, not even yeah, bio. Yeah. Wow. So it, um, it binds to it's the very mRNA. recent development. Okay. Okay. It's super recent, and it's um, there's still a lot of research being done, but uh, it, it plays a huge role in regulating how like certain genes are, are. You know, like does that gene get expressed as like protein manufacturing or or not? And they're really tiny. Like the reason they're called microRNAs is because they're only twenty, uh, roughly twenty nucleotides. So oh, wow. you know, like yeah. Super That's, tiny. Wow. Because, I mean, comparing that to, I guess, a, a, a normal size D, like DNA sequence of nucleotides, that's, that's really small. Okay, never mind. But, yeah, go on, John. No, <laughs> you're, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, like, you know, the average, I think human DNA is like thousands uh, of, I think thousands even, right? Maybe it's like millions. I'm not sure the exact number, but it's a large number of base pairs. So they call it microRNA because it's, it's, so, it's so tiny. But it plays a huge role. In, in regulating gene expression. And you know, the fact that, you know, COVID is a virus. So the, we, we talked last time in our last podcast um, about how viruses work. They inject the DNA into the host cell and they trick the host cell into generating more and more copies of itself. But for people who have this, um, this gene that I think produces the uh, MI, the, the microRNA that I mentioned earlier, 1307, mm -hmm. um, it can actually affect how your cells uh, react to the COVID DNA, um, the foreign DNA. So it can, it can potentially control the uh, life, like how quickly COVID can reproduce, which is why it, hmm. some people may have, um, you know, uh, part of the reason for those varying symptoms may be that, um, that ex expression regulatory mechanism, huh. that sort of microRNA. Wow, um, I wonder if they could like use that technology. Yeah, I'm assuming this technology might help people that have these allergic reactions into stopping it before the reaction happens. Would that be something? I've thought about that too. I'm not. It seems like this is a very recent development. Uh -huh. I'm not sure if maybe it's you know in the future, but who knows? Yeah, maybe um, about for future diseases, for future diseases, um, if it's viable to uh, control these microRNA expression mechanisms, I think that'd be really powerful. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's a pretty it's pretty interesting a little piece of oh and I actually looked I actually saw the actual like sequence for mm -hmm. the MI the, the exact one I told you about so for those in the audience or chat that are curious um, there's something called um, BioGPS there, there are all these really cool websites you can use for researchers that do DNA research and if you look up um, that specific um, piece of uh, let me check the title again I keep calling it if you look up MIR1307 you'll find it it's only I said roughly most microRNAs are 20 base pairs. This specific one is only 19, so it falls wow. it falls short of the average. But um, it, it's a it's amazing to hear like the effect it can have on potentially reducing uh, COVID 19s harmful impact on the human body. 
Wow. So, so okay. So this mRNA combined to mRNA, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, prov- it can either stop certain genes that are being expressed from the mRNA strand. Right. Okay. Because huh. the uh, I think I, I didn't look into too much detail, but my That's hunch here is like if I pretend this ruler is our mRNA, mm-hmm. um, you, you remember like for each amino acid, it's a codon. So it's like three base pairs per each chunk. Right, so the yeah. mRNA knows how to kind of like glue itself to certain parts or it, it forms a complex on the mRNA that prevents the ribosomes from you know really wow. reading through it and uh, producing the necessary protein. I, I think that's how it works. Um, if, if anyone's watching or if anyone's like uh, in chat that knows more about this, that's like like from my cursory gloss gloss over. But I just know uh, for the purposes of this article that the mRNA the mRNA oh. that's, um, has that regulatory effect. And this can help people that do get COVID to prevent COVID from expressing itself or from du- like I guess duplicating. Well, as- we can't. Uh, Ideally, like if it, if okay, we in a could, perfect theory, yeah. in theoretical, like I'm talking theoretical. Okay. Okay. Well, um, um, I, I think it can, it can significantly reduce the, um, uh, it probably can, can stop a lot of the symptoms because if you think about it, I just told you earlier, right. It, it, it can control, um, uh, COVID's reproduction cycle, um, inside the human body. So if we can mm. slow it down to the point where our medicine or the immune system kind mm. of, I, I don't know, has a chance to fight it or or um, uh, maybe other medicines that take longer have more time. I think that's um, really great. Although oh, ideally, yeah, um, we'd want to kill it you know, as soon as it enters the body. Like, you don't even want to give it um, a chance um, to fester any longer. Yeah, no, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good point, yeah. To, to, if you increase the time, and it, lo- it buys us time to, if we were to use like the traditional vaccine method, it could you know, allow that to happen, I guess, safer. Because you're increasing the time, and people aren't gonna like quickly get sick. I guess. <laughs> no, it's um. You have a point. Uh, and in, in my in the other COVID-related article that I have, I'm gonna introduce you and uh, maybe um, our audience the idea of what a cytokine storm is. And and cytokines are a kind of compound wow. that um, are responsible for a lot of the deadly inflammation um, in different parts of the body that cause people to die um, from COVID. Uh, so. Um, if we're able to slow down uh, the the way the, the rate COVID spreads in the body, I think it can actually uh, potentially mitigate that inflammatory response. Oh, which I think is great. That's for, um, I, that's my hypothesis. Mm-hmm. I, maybe I might be wrong in that regard, but um, I still think being able to buy time is definitely uh, a valuable thing to uh, be able to do. Yeah, um, and I'm just thinking because a lot of things in nature have like an exponential growth or like log based. So if we're able to still increase that times slightly, rather than having like a, an inflammatory response like you were talking about, that would that would be that would be uh, theoretically speaking that'd be sweet. You know, right, we we, right. we, we it, love time. <laughs> we always wish we yeah, had more for, time. Yeah, for those of you that you know, uh, Ryan mentioned exponential and, and log. I think the both of us had a flashback to algorithms, even um, even uh, to uh, circuits. With, yeah, with, yeah. Uh, so with log, your, the, your the, uh, log scale graphs, right? yeah. The, the Bode diagrams and the Laplace transforms. Um, you'll see exponentials um, and logarithms all over the place. So yeah. um, if any of you in the audience you know, are, are planning on becoming great engineers, you better get comfortable um, with, those, um, with those values. Yeah, <laughs> definitely.
decades and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Oh my goodness. But that's kind of the beauty of math, though, isn't it? Like it, it's. Yeah. I think what's what always amazes me about math in particular is how we see it's it's a completely abstract notion, right? Like if I asked you, show me one, what would you do? I'd point. I'd, I'd be like this. I got one finger. Right, but that's that's one finger. It's yeah. A, it's but it's not it's, one. It's not right? one. See, yeah, yeah, yeah. So so it, it it amazes me to no end that we were able to sort of come up with this body of knowledge. Oh, <laughs> you know, all in a, it's completely theoretical. And then mm-hmm. in nature, we find like, oh my goodness, this thing. Um, exist in nature or there's a relationship in nature and um the most extreme example i can think of this is string theory for the longest time uh, uh quantum mechanics the physical realm has been explained by sort of two bodies of knowledge uh, uh quantum mechanics and general relativity general relativity is fantastic for very large bodies like if, if i asked you like um if ryan if you're an astronaut and you're trying to orbit earth like you know you're just you know free orbiting earth Mm-hmm. Um, we can use uh, relativistic mechanics to calculate um, your orbital trajectory, um, what uh, what physical effects your body might have, and for very small things like for the transistors in our computers, um, electrons and, and super small particles, uh, quantum mechanics does a, a wonderful job. But there are times in there are certain physical scenarios where both of them break down, like none mm-hmm. of them can really they don't really overlap nicely. And physicists have always been upset at that. You know, they don't like that there are certain, you know, phys- uh, physical phenomena that are um, not cleanly explainable um, with quantum mechanics or gener- or they don't agree in certain areas, like what happens at the edge of black holes, for example. So string right. theory was kind of uh, an answer. It's a proposed solution to that problem. Um, and a lot of physicists call it, uh, you might hear in the news, they call it the ultimate theory of everything. Have you heard of that? Yeah, term yeah, I, I have. Theory I of have. everything. Right. So because, it's what connects it's what connects mechanical and qu- like quantum the different ways of solving problems in physics is um is... that's a, that's a good surface level interpretation. I think um the real nuance here is it's not that we can't get them to play nice. Um if you do a little more research um or if you take like a first year graduate course in quantum mechanics, you'll learn um about uh, relativistic quantum mechanics. So Normally, in, in like our undergraduate studies, the electron or the particle is you know at really slow speed. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's it's sort of uh, we don't really care how fast it's going. But in in Europe, or you know, when you're a particle physicist, you're fleeing this particle at like ninety nine percent the speed of light. So you okay. really need to factor in those like the uh, Lorentz transforms and all that yeah, stuff. Right, right. So so it's not that they don't really play. It's just that there are certain phenomena, things that happen in nature that none of them, neither of them seem to agree on. And we want to okay. find a way to make them play nice. So Right. Because uh, calculations for going at speed of light are different than if you were just in a car, right? Right. No, ex- precisely. Um, you know, Einstein and, and Lorentz. I mean, you remember those crazy problems yeah. we had to do. And like, like, oh, Bob and Alice. And Alice is going at like 0.8 the speed of light. And I'm yeah. like, And she has like a on, clock. Man. And she's going yeah, on a train. Exactly. And Bob's stationary. Find oh, the time goodness. dilation between Bob and Anna. <laughs> the, the thing that kills me, though, is like for physics, like finding the Lorentz transforms wasn't like I hated the Lorentz transforms, but I loved the Schrodinger equation. Like like solving mm, that I second order, it. that was actually fun. But that's because it's relevant to my work in, in quantum mechanics or quantum computing. So, uh, but I digress. So going back to string theory, the the, the basic idea is that normally um, when we do math with particles, 
we assume the particles are, are points, right? You know, they're singular, um, you know, they, they have almost little to no mass um, in our assumption. So with string okay. theory, we actually say that all matter can be represented by these kinds of vibrating um, strings and, you know, the, the different configurations of those strings, which are super, super tiny, like uh, no, uh, it's almost like, I think at Planck's length, but, but um, these strings vibrate and they, they loop on themselves and the way they interact, um, the math behind this can actually, uh, could potentially help or is promising in, in explaining those uh, unexplainable phenomena. So that's what um, it, it's, but uh, we have yet to find experimental proof, you know, but it's, it, and, and there's a lot of argument too, because people are saying like you're investing, a lot of physicists are investing too much time or too much energy into a theory that could be totally wrong. Like, you know, it, it could, right. we have to throw it out the window because before string theory, there were other, you know, attempts at something like this, but um, they also sort of fell apart. And oh, going back to why I even talk about string theory is a lot of the um, math, uh, a lot of math comes out from string theory. Like there's a lot of new math that we've never seen before. Huh. And the really cool thing is mathematicians have been finding more and more new relationships. So like, oh, string theory came up with this thing and like, okay, whatever. And now mathematicians are like, wait a minute, doesn't that thing solve this other problem that we've been stuck on for decades? And I think that's really cool, you know? Right. Yeah, no, that's, that's the beauty behind it, right? You're looking for one thing, but you end up finding a whole range of other things that solve other problems. Right, right. I mean, uh, oh, it looks like Scotty's here. Uh, what's up, guys? Got to sleep soon, but I'm enjoying the string theory. Oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm very hardened to hear it. I know it's a bit of a tangent. Um, uh, yeah, we, we uh, ended we, up on mRNA, <laughs> and now we're on string theory. <laughs> right, right. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, um, I think just talking about math, uh, as sort of like the universal tongue. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you, yeah, math is beautiful in that sense. You yeah. never know where it can take you. Yeah, and I, uh, I would have loved to, uh, if I could decide between or minoring in something, it would be mathematics for sure. I wish I had that kind of confidence. Like, <laughs> I, I think Ryan and, and a lot of my friends can testify that I, I really appreciate and love math, but I'm I'm pretty terrible. Like like on exams. Oh, if you saw my exam scores, it's pretty mediocre stuff. But um, anyways, yeah. Um, you you just see a lot of patterns in nature pop up over and over again, and math kind of explains that underlying um, pattern. But anyways, let's kind of you know, let's bring it. Oh, Scotty mitered in in math. Oh wow, look at that. That's pretty. That's hats pretty, off to you, man. That's, that's pretty bonkers, dude. You. Yeah, wow. poggers. I, <laughs> I, I'm still, for those of you that don't know, I am very new to the Twitch scene. I've never really bothered to use Twitch or, or you know, really mess with around with it. Ryan's the Twitch expert here. He does a lot of the administrative stuff with our channel. Um, so I, I mean, like just a couple weeks ago, I learned about oh, like poggers, quick, uh, uh, pog champ, and okay. how about we sort of bring it back to COVID? I, how mm. about I do my second article? Yeah, um, go, for sound, Ryan? go for right, it. All right, cool. So um, I mentioned, you know, uh, this really neat thing with this microRNA. Um, so now I've got another thing, and this comes from Science Daily, and it talks about how there's some new research that suggests that COVID enters the brain. So oh, how, what do you what do you know geez. so far in terms of like COVID symptoms? Like like you know um, like if you had to suspect uh, uh, COVID affected the brain, like what kind of symptoms do you think oh, um, man. There, there currently exist? Um, oh, you know, I would maybe. Think about uh, it might be connected to why some people lose their sense of 
uh, smell or taste when they get when they get COVID. I wonder if oh, it's okay. something like trick like like cuts off a circuitry in your brain uh, that affects it, or um, yeah, I, like I, I that's something I think the top of my head I would I would go for that. It's interesting you bring that up. Uh, the article doesn't talk about losing a sense of smell, but now I'm really curious if what if what you pointed out was something the original research paper might have mentioned as well. Huh. So, uh, so as as I mentioned kind of earlier, a lot of people with COVID su- uh, suffer certain cognitive effects, so brain fog, um, you know, they're, they're fatigued, tired, and recent research says that it's it's probably due to the spike protein. So I think I mentioned that last time as well. Right, um, sort of the things found on the surface of, of COVID. Exactly. Um, so you've seen like those those pictures of COVID, right? Like under the electron microscope, and they have little feet, right? Like it's a bunch of like little yeah. protrusions. It's a little um, thumbtacks. <laughs> right. That's actually why it's called um, coronavirus. Wait, you lost me there. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> yeah. They're, they're the, connected the, thumbtacks and coronavirus. Well, no, not the the thumbtacks, but the oh. protrusions like <laughs> okay. coming out of the virus itself. Like if this was the virus, and then you got like the little things coming out, and it's because if you look at the virus through a microscope, it almost looks like the virus has like a crown. Like it's got the little things that come out of it on the sides, and the Latin word for crown oh, is corona. Corona, hey. so coronavirus because it looks like it's got like a little crown. So. Right. Um, that's a, a sort of sort of little fun fact. Um. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's yeah. Holy crap! I just realized that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, basically, the spike protein is is kind of like the uh, coronavirus's secret. It's not secret weapon, but it's it's it's, it's de facto method of operating because it that protein is sort of the key to how the coronavirus DNA can get into um, host cells. So. Um, there's a recent paper um, was published in Nature Neuroscience by William A. Banks. He's a professor of medicine at the University of Washington uh, School of Medicine. Uh, and he talks about how S1 actually causes damage um, not only when it's part of the coronavirus, but when it detaches too. So when it's just kind of freely floating around. So not just the virus, but the, the, the oh. S1 protein, the spike protein itself right. um, causes damage. Uh, it's sort of like if you... Uh... If, I guess if you're a small cell and you had a bunch of knives around your surface and like the knife is floating around, just cutting things. Yeah. That, I um, guess that's of. a thing I'm picturing. I don't think, I don't think the protein reattaches itself to, I, I'm not sure about that, but it still causes chaos in your body. And it's, it's they, something that you don't re- want in your body is I'm just like, I'm just, you know, it's going to cause harm. Right. Right. Um, absolutely. So uh, basically what happens is, this S1 protein, or um, well, S1 is a, a kind of glycoprotein. So um, a, a glycoprotein. Do you, do you remember what that means <laughs> from Glyco. AP Bio? Glycoprotein, glyco, like glucose. I think everyone knows what a protein is. I think yeah. that's a fair assumption. Glyco. <laughs> you have to remind me on that one. So glycoprotein is the basis of protein, but it's got a bunch of carbs like attached to it, a bunch of carbohydrates or sugars. Okay. Um, that are, are connected to it. And it's uh, responsible for, like, you find it on the surface of a lot of cells, but that's the spike protein. Um, it, it is essentially a kind of glycoprotein. So that helps bind to different, um, the, the surfaces of different cells. I see, I see. And what happens is uh, when it sort of detaches from the virus, uh, it can also cause the brain to release inflammatory products. So things that encourage different organs to inflame or the immune system to attack them. 
And that's why uh, just a couple minutes ago, I mentioned the cytokines, those compounds um, that are responsible for uh, regulating sort of that inflammatory response. So uh, one of the things that's linked to COVID is uh, what's called a cytokine storm. Have you heard of that before? No, yeah. So you brought that up. I, I, have no, I haven't heard that before. A okay, storm? So, that's yeah, cytokine storm. It sounds like a, it sounds like a punk metal name, like a yeah. rock band or something. Like, oh, you know, and you know, live from the uh, I, I don't know, like uh, from this stadium. Like, oh, it's the. Uh, <laughs> sounds like the name of a hurricane or you know, like something on land. It sounds sci-fi, like, right? Yeah. It sounds like science fiction. But uh, actually, it's it's the body actually overreacts. Um, it's it's it's, it's like a positive feedback loop where it's mm. like, okay, I see the cytokines and and it's going to try and attack them, and then more cytokines get released, and then you know, there's so much cytokine going through your body that your immune system's like all out, like it, all out brawl with your own body. Mm-hmm. So your body starts attacking itself, and you suffer these you know uh, t- terrible symptoms, uh, you know, in terms of a very severe inflammation. Um, you know, in the brain and, and you know, lung infections and stuff like that. So um, COVID uh, cytokine storm, it's like one of the byproducts of the COVID infection. Um, and the S1 spike protein is can contribute to that. Interesting. So yeah, it causes our body to sort of overwork and, right, right. and, to, and to, um, to fight off whatever it is not supposed to be in our body. And when it overworks, it's going to inflame uh, certain parts of it. Yeah. That, that, that makes sense. Yeah. It's, um, uh, it's, it's scary too. Uh, like what, what, I guess what parts it inflames specifically. So like, would it, are, are there only certain, I guess, organs that inflame more frequently than, than others? There probably are. Um, but I, I'm not too certain on the, uh, on the specifics there. Just, yeah, it's just a thought bubble. I don't know. Yeah. So uh, basically, the this researcher, so uh, Banks and, and some other researchers have noticed that S1 um, is very similar in behavior to the GP120 protein. Um, if you wanted to guess... <laughs> GP120? Um, yeah, if you wanted to guess, like, what, what, what other disease you think GP120 is from. It's also pretty deadly. Um, and I mentioned, here's a big hint, it's uh, an immune-related um, disease. Um, has it and was it like a long time ago, like like a thousand years ago, or is it like no, pretty? No, it's, it's, I mean recent? it's still a problem now. It's still a problem now. Mm. Uh, immune response. Immune response. Uh, it's like like, kind of virus. Like like uh, a Spanish flu. The influenza. Okay, that's I like what you're thinking, but uh, um, I'm actually thinking it? of HIV. Oh, you know that was the second HIV. one. That was the second one on my list. I was going to say. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so GP120 is the protein that HIV uses. And these researchers have figured out that oh, they're both glycoproteins. Um, oh. They can both. They also both have the property of being able to cross the blood-brain barrier. Have you heard of that before? The blood-brain barrier. So is it just the barrier between our brain and the bloodstream? <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I mean, you're not wrong. I mean, that's exactly what it is. It, it's. <laughs> it's like a gateway. We, right. Right. The uh, it's a defense mechanism that mm. we uh, have by by default. Okay. Go on. It prevents a lot of pathogens from being able to get from our blood into our brain because our brain is kind of like super, you know, like it needs a lot of extra defense. So that's one mechanism. But the kind of drawback to the blood-brain barrier is, you know, a lot of medicines that target uh, uh, the brain are are very. Di- did I say mental medicines? Um, I don't think you did. 
okay, I, I don't think I don't because I don't think that's the right term, mental medicines. But a lot of <laughs> medicines that target the brain um, uh, have like for for uh, people who develop these de- medications, it's it's a pain because you have to develop it in such a way that it actually slips through the barrier. Most of the time, existing compounds can't slip through, so you have to target the barrier somehow, and it has to like squeeze its way through. And uh, these proteins, GP120 and S1 from HIV and COVID, can actually um, slip through the barrier. Oh, no. Um, Well, okay, this research was done on mice. And the Uh article, the the title of the article is it's highly suggestive that it may also have the same behavior um, in the human brain, um, that it can uh, slip through the uh, blood-brain barrier, which is why there may be all these cognitive effects. And... um, they already proposed that, you know how people have a lot of respiratory problems with COVID, right? Right, like right. Probably the number one symptom associated with COVID is minor, uh, uh, I think it's acute respiratory distress. Mm. And what happens is that they think it might not be so much the lung infection as it is the brain getting uh, infected as well. And your oh. brain also regulates some of your breathing. So they think that maybe there's some oh, response where your brain is like, they think that's another contributory mechanism to the symptoms. Yeah, because um, we you know we breathe automatically. We don't have to think to breathe. Right. So there has right. to be some part of our brain that you know that controls that. I think it's um, the hypothalamus, if I'm okay. not mistaken, the hypothalamus, um, because it looks at the carbon dioxide levels in our body, and it will try and auto-regulate, which is why we don't have to think about breathing. Although it's kind of funny you mentioned that. Um, have you ever seen that meme with the uh, the cat? Like it's it's a British short hair and it and all it says is heavy breathing. No, I haven't. It's it's a super old meme. It's, but the reason I bring it up is because like have you ever noticed every time someone mentions like, hey Ryan, you're breathing, you realize like you have to consciously think. Yeah, like, I know. Like I've tried to consciously think about like breathing and it, it it's weird. Oh, like consciously think of why I'm moving. It's like it's weird because like because you, you you think about it, but then you kind of forget how to. I'll not really forget how to do it, but um, for example, I guess a good ex- uh, example would be when I play basketball, if I'm thinking so hard about how I'm going to make a layup, I'm going to mess up. It, it's really weird because I, if I think about like every part of my body, like how it moves and how I'm going to make that layup, I, I don't know about you, but like I, I, I would miss it. it oh, it, no, absolutely. I mean, it, I, I don't play basketball. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely not as, uh, um, you know, for anyone in the audience, I'm definitely not as uh, physically active as Ryan. But I, I used to play the piano uh, for quite a long time. And I found out, like, uh, a lot of times oh, when pianists so... practice, it's muscle memory. So right. you don't even have to think about it. Mm-mm. But the moment someone tells me, like, hey, John, you're doing a really good job. I'm like, yeah. you know, I, I, start, I start panicking because I just realize, like, oh, my goodness. Like, they're, they're, like, I have to think about which note I have to play. And I mess up. And I'm like, oh, you know, shoot. But uh, – yeah, so uh, they think that basically these, the, if, if this behavior is shown in humans, so mm-hmm. disclaimer, this was research done on rats, but it's usually uh, we, the reason we use these mice is because uh, part of their anatomy reflects uh, some parts of how the human body works. If it can cross the blood-brain barrier in mice, there's a very good chance it, the same behavior could be found in humans. So I, I always thought of these proteins kind of like landmines. Like after the, the virus is done, it's like, oh, let me leave one big, you know, I'll, I'll just, you know, steaming pile of poop for you um, with these proteins that cause these terrible um, inflammatory responses. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, it's like bringing everyone down while they're trying, yeah. while they're going down. Um, yeah, definitely. 
And I mean, that's interesting. Also, I'm, uh, I wonder if there's any research on just like previous, uh, like just colds, you know, that or or um, like the Spanish flu or, or something that they they also affect cognitive function. If there's like any linkage bet- uh, between those, I think that'd be interesting to look into. Because I'm assuming this isn't the first, you know, this maybe not be the first. I guess, uh, like, link between cognitive function being affected and a virus in our body. So, yeah, I'm just, I don't know. What do you think about that, John? I, I definitely agree with you. Like, I, I feel like there's, this is probably not, like, a new mechanism. Like, it's probably been seen before. Um, but there's still some research being done to make sure this is a thing. And it looks like I, I was mistaken. Like, you mentioned the, the loss of smell and mm-hmm. whether or not that was linked. I think it was actually, it was actually mentioned in this article. So oh. I, I totally forgot about that. I, wow. I'm looking at my notes again here. Um, but it says that the experiments have shown that S1 transports faster um, in the olfactory bulb. So uh, you, you know how smell works for humans, right? Um, like the exact kind of mechanism or rough idea, at least. Uh, we we sniff it through our nose, and then our brain does some calculations, and then we're like, "Oh, that smells like pineapple." <laughs> it's, not, it's not a it's not a wrong assumption, um, but uh, basically, uh, what happens is there's so behind our nose, there's a, a nasal cavity, right? It's kind of like a chamber, um, it's sort of above the mouth. Um, the air goes through, and there are these nerve endings that are responsible for kind of detecting different smells. And those nerve endings are just above our, so this is like the front of my brain. Mm -hmm. And if you go right, like underneath it, like right here, those nerve endings, that's the olfactory bulb. It's kind of the bridge between your brain and those those nerve endings. So S1 actually affects that area. So that might be the loss of of taste. So it's probably, I'm binding to those like neurons, or uh, yeah, those neural connect, maybe, there's neural connections. It's causing in... the inflammation, like the cytokines. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. And, was, and you know, how, you know how some people do regain their sense of smell and taste. Uh huh. Yeah, that's. Uh, I wonder if like the, infl- you know, the inflammatory response has like decreased, so that way they're able to regain, oh, sort of regain those. Yeah, that that makes sense. I think it's definitely uh, got to be able to do that. And uh, that makes sense. Yeah. Um. Let's see. Oh, it also travels in kidneys. Um. So it's in the kidneys as well. Yo, and, kid, kidneys freak me out. I thought they were pretty big, but they're pretty. They look at least. <laughs> I thought they were like big, light, like beans, in our in the back of our. Wait, 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 no, no, hold up. How big did you think a kidney was? I like, thought they were at least like six feet. I mean, oh my, I'm not six, six feet. feet. <laughs> How's that gonna fit in that? I, bo- I oh said six feet, <laughs> like <laughs> like six inches. My bad. Or like eight I mean, this inches. goes back to the we we just proved the stereotype. I'm dead. That engineers are like you know how like people joke like engineers are bad at math, so they they um we make we make approximations, right? Yeah. Like pi is equal to e is equal to three. I've seen that one before. <laughs> oh so my you, gosh. I mean, you're just saying like or oh, do you remember um from physics x is equal to sine of x for very small x? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh my gosh, yeah, I remember that in mathematics. Like you're uh, even in 21a like. Uh, uh in in like your first uh calculus course um they'll, they'll talk about that like x equals sine x and, uh, and they'd plug that in i'm like what that's cheating yeah, yeah, I'm like how you I'm like you can't do <laughs> exactly i'm like you can't do this how, how can you make this that illegal assumption? yeah and then every time i i always felt i felt it felt like every time i had to use it i felt like they were gonna mark me down like no you can't use it here and i'm like but how do you know when to use it and mm. i'm like oh it's just a feeling and i'm like what do you mean it's just a feeling like <laughs> right right 
It's it's just but, it's just um uh what's what's it called? Not instinct. It's it's just uh what's the other word? Like intuition. It's just intuition. Intu- okay. Yeah. Intuition. Yeah, it's not a it's not a bad assumption. Um intuition. So uh yeah, so the, basically the research also shows that the S1 like uh, it goes faster. Uh, it goes. It travels faster through the olfactory bulb and the kidneys um, of men, which might explain why men seem to have more severe symptoms more often than women, um, because S1 seems to travel huh. through the uh, male body faster than uh, the woman. But we're not sure. Um, wow. We're not sure why. So. They're zooming through the men. Uh, yeah, uh, I guess so. <laughs> it's just pretty. Un- it's a pretty unfortunate thing, but uh, wow. yeah. So. That's the latest. So we, so once again, um, it's not confirmed that, uh, or I mean, the article makes it sound like S1 is definitely like going through the human brain, but I mean, this was research on a mice. So, um, but they, but it's very promising. It's very promising. Wow. Future of post COVID post pandemic, but technically post COVID more post COVID I would term it because you, we can't really say we're done with pandemics because we've had pandemics like Spanish flu, H1N1, AIDS. So all those sorts of, um, I guess they weren't as scaled as COVID, but um, they were definitely uh, flags to have like further looked into that stuff. So um, my article is going to be, uh, what's li- what will life be after the coronavirus pandemic ends? And so, um, but I guess before we get into that, I wanted to first go over uh, some previous post-pandemics. And um, because obviously this is not the first pandemic to have happened. Uh, And yeah, so let's let's go into that real quick. And I guess let me first define pandemic because a lot of times that can get confused with epidemic, which, you know, sometimes people want to interchange those words, but obviously they're two different meanings. So pandemic is, um, this is from the Merriam-Webster dictionary. it's uh, something that occurs over a wide ge- geographic area, such as multiple countries or continents, and typically affecting a significant p- uh, proportion of the population. So, um, yeah, and an epidemic, though, is sort of the opposite of that, where it, it's, it only affects like, a, a certain community, um, I guess, a certain niche of, of, of the population, and it doesn't uh, affect a significant, a significant proportion of the population. So it's sort of the inverse of pandemic. Um, and so, yeah, so I guess let me, let me go over, uh, some of the, the first pandemic that was recorded in history. So, um, I don't know if you know about this, John, but, um, do, do you know like, the first, is it influenza? Can I guess mm-hmm. influenza? Nope. Oh, it's not. Okay. No, this is way, way before the influenza. Like I'm Plague? talking about BC era. BC. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, I can't say I know anything. Okay, but yeah, let, let, so let me go ahead and uh, talk about it. So in 430 BC, during the Peloponnesian War, uh, so this war was between the Spartans and uh, Athenians, and so then these were two, uh, the one, two of the most powerful city-states in ancient Greece, and this time frame was about 431 to 405 BC. Uh, so this disease swept through Egypt, Libya, Ethiopia, and it crossed Athens' walls as the Spartans were sieging. So this really weaken Athens community, as you can imagine, a pandemic uh, or this, this sickness, and um, two thirds of the population died. And so to give perspective of the numbers of people that lived in, uh, in Athens, uh, 
So the population of Athens at the time that occurred was around 610,000 to 360,000. So, um, and this is a big estimate because the number of slaves, uh, medics, which were non-citizens, um, and oh, okay. Athenian families, so it, it's 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 like a very big estimation. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? A plus minus three hundred thousand. Yeah. yeah, that's a pretty. Yeah, I mean, if you took a math exam with that kind of probability, you'd probably fail. <laughs> yeah. So and with so and with the two thirds population dying, it would have killed approximately four hundred thousand to two hundred forty thousand people, wow. um, which is I mean, you know, you have six hundred thousand. If you have like best case scenario, you have six hundred ten thousand people. You wipe out. Uh, and um, you're left with 200,000 people. You know, that's, that's, that's a big number. Um, and so, and this, so this sickness was what we get in Athens and what contrib- contributed to their loss to the Spartans and a couple of symptoms from this disease. And uh, this was actually recorded by, uh, uh, I wrote it, oh, according to, I am going to butcher the name. <laughs> Uh, but it's it's Thucydides, Thucydides. Oh, I know who you're talking about. It's like T H U C Y D I D E S, something something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. And he was an Athenian historian and general. So he, he recounted the war. He recounted this, or he he noted this uh, at the time. So that's that's where we get these numbers. Um, but yeah. Uh, and what's so, the um? Are you about to tell me what the virus is or what the disease is? They called it the Athen, the Athen fever. That's 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 what they. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I have. Huh. Yeah. So, they. You know, I'm, I'm curious if they can get like a DNA sample because you know how there's been always been this like like this going like pulling back to COVID I guess but uh, uh, like you know a lot of people are worried like oh my gosh the vaccine is going to change my DNA the actual thing they should be scared about is in history a lot of viral DNA becomes part of human DNA. Oh. Oh. Like uh, historically. Uh, I think that yeah, over, as we adapt, as we adapt to the the, the different mutations of, of viruses, uh, uh, right? Well, no, I mean like literally parts of the DNA just gets left out. They become part oh. of the human genome. Wow! So we have traces of uh, prehistoric viral DNA, just you know, part of our own. Huh. Um, and it's just it's just kind of sitting there. I mean, wow. That's so. So I wonder if they can get like a DNA sample from those uh, dead Athenians and, and maybe um, figure out what this. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, because I'm just curious. Like, what if, what if it's also COVID-related? I mean, you know, it could be a precursor. Oh, yeah, you know, you never, you never know. know. Yeah, um, and so they actually made tied to this to the to actually be to the typhoid ty- typhoid fever. Oh, okay, typhoid. Yeah, yeah, that's I've heard of that one. And uh, so they they say it's it was similar to that, but uh, but luckily the typhoid fever is treatable with vaccinations, and um, only twenty thousand cases per year in the United States on that sickness. So fun fact. Wait, <laughs> I guess fun fact. still a thing. Uh, yeah, and it's only uh, right now less than twenty thousand cases per year in the United States. According in the U.S. Yeah, in the U.S. Yep. Wow, I thought most children. Well, I guess it's not by law, but but most children like to go go to a school. Like, don't you need like a Tdap shot? It's like typhoid diphtheria, um, and and you get like a booster shot, like you know when you're a little older. Because um, I I remember like going through my records. I, I know I had that vaccine. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't know typhoid's still a thing. Wow. I guess huh. I guess it's just for uh, oh, people that are affected that aren't able to get those vaccinations. I'm assuming That's it's true. probably those cases. Like you can't assume everyone's going to take the vaccine. 
uh, you know. Right, right. But I mean, the goal is that for those, I mean, it's not so much to help anti-vaxxers. It's to help people who can't take the vaccine because they're immunocompromised. Um, it's to develop herd immunity, right? So if a certain percentage and a very large percentage um, take the vaccine, then the, those at, at risk that can't take it are, will be um, safe because you can immediately mitigate how quickly the vaccine travels. Right, right. And so, yeah, so let me, uh, the list of pandemics that occurred after the 1350s, I have, I make it create okay. a little fun list is so the, a not fun, fun oh my gosh, <laughs> that's so dark humor. Oh my God. That's not fun. Uh, many people died. So yeah, this is like serious stuff. So the, the, the first one is the black death, which is, which is, I think the bubonic plague. Yeah. Everyone probably learned that from history in their history classes. Like a third of the world population? Or? Uh, yeah, it's a huge number of people that died. And, um, yeah, because that thing went from, from Europe, well, I don't know where exactly it originated, but it, it spread over like, you know, the entire continent. Right. And so the next one is the Fiji measles, or the, and this was actually, uh, uh, so the Fiji population uh, sort of, they got hit, their population got hit one third of their population died after the visitation of queen victoria from british empire so she carried oh, this this yeah and this was after they the uh fiji ceded to the uh british empire and so she wanted to come in and give thanks or like as a uh, uh, from the treaty that they they did and she brought over this measles uh, <laughs> uh sickness and, and yeah they, they uh, don't have like a natural immunity towards it huh? nope yeah it was it was it was uh yeah no and uh, so the next one is the Russian flu, which uh, noted here, uh, 360,000 people died. The Spanish flu, a big uh, 50 million deaths worldwide, which is uh, insane. And then the HIV AIDS, 35 million deaths worldwide. And now up to now, right before COVID, SARS, and then COVID. So. Wow. Yeah. Uh, but those some, uh, some of them I did, some of the other, I guess, sicknesses I left out, but um and sort of i guess those, those are just some like notable examples right right yeah, yeah just notable examples okay. that that i uh wanted to share and then um and then so now it's like how do these pandemics even uh, occur right um it, let's say for example what if instead of as a human species we weren't hunter and gatherers and we didn't shift over to an agrarian life where we you know it's out, where it's agriculture based um things like these uh like these pandemics where there's uh where we live in an agrarian, agrarian uh, lifestyle, where we're always in contact with people, we're social, or well, at least we need to go out and like get some food at the grocery store. You know, we, we sort of depend on markets uh, for food, unless you're a farmer, I guess. But um, we we everything's centralized, right? Yeah, sort of central. Yeah, and uh, we we have communities. Um, so and these communities are sort of allow for pandemics to, or epidemics to occur easier because people are always in contact, you're talking to someone, you're gonna go meet with someone in person. Um, and not even, and, uh, ba and off that with community, you need transportation. And you look at the United States, you know, global, and not even in, in the United States, you look at um, globally, we need global transportation now, planes, uh, tra you know, trains going from here to like Canada, I don't know, from everywhere. Oh, and then we have a bot that stopped by, we should delete that. Oh yeah. Real quick. Oh. Um, can you delete that on your end? Uh, oh, I can only click to reply. Oh, wait a minute. Hold on. Is it mod view? Yeah. Uh, 
Okay. Uh, here we go. Let me skip all. Get that. Get that out of here. We don't want any of that. It's just uh, probably block them, right? Yeah, just block them. Okay. Because um, it's, it's a bot account. Um, so There we go. So we, uh, yeah, so um, how these pandemics occur from the just global transportation, huge, popula uh, huge population size that we have, um, our ways of social interactions and uh, communities, they all factor in into sort of why pandemics occur in the first place. Um, and... So uh, from this article, uh, I sort of mashed two of them together. Uh, but let's start with the first one being lessons from past pandemics that we've sort of tried to, uh, now that we would like someone made this article to sort of list out things that we should sort of learn from past pandemics. And the first one being is that names matter. So, um, and so, like, what do you think that means, John? Names matter. Names so, matter. Like the name of the, the, the virus or the disease, right? Right. I think it's uh, the origin. So I, I think it gives a hint as to the origin or method of transmission. Um, for, like, if, if we call it bird flu, people will know, like, oh, so this, this flu comes from, from birds. Or um, uh, I, I guess, uh, let's see, uh, SARS uh, kind of gives you a hint as to the, the – um, side effect uh, of the disease. I think that's what it means. Okay. Um, what about like uh, I guess Spanish flu or the Russian flu? Uh, well, those country of origin, right? We would assume country of origin. But uh, I know um, current WHO guidelines uh, do not. Um, they they usually don't condone uh, naming a disease after its country of origin, um, uh, which is why it's uh, you know some terrible sort of remarks from. Uh, you know, as we see, like the alternative name for COVID, which is absolutely not correct. So, uh, <laughs> so naming it in this way creates inaccurate messages and in making the flu seem distant. So, for example, like the Spanish flu or what the, you know, the Russian flu or like, for example, in this and the COVID, um, you know, the whole debate you know, between, you know, the, the China flu, if you know, quote unquote. Right. Which is it, a pretty terrible um yeah. terrible name right and um it sort of creates that distance like oh you know that's that's over there it's not going to come over here you know like it sort of cre creates that, that that stigma that some scholars are saying that that um that affect the way we react that we'll, that will respond to it as as a human as, as like a person so um so that's one of them the second one being uh and there's a total of six so the first one yeah so names matter the second one being social distancing works and i think we all can agree to that, that, uh, especially, you know, there, there's even a mathematical equation that shows this, you know, this, this, uh, and there's, uh, simulations done that show that when you're social distancing, you're reducing the number of people, you know, being affected by one another. And, um, uh, overall you're increasing the time or, uh, reducing the, the, the spread, uh, as we separate. And the third one, uh, so the third one on the list is viruses don't spare the young, which, um, in this case, COVID, there are some cases where it did affect younger people, um, and it yeah, does. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, you know, bringing it back to like what I said earlier, right? Mm -hmm. COVID has a number of varying. So you know, some some people may have absolutely terrible, uh, uh, you know, illnesses, and others may um, others may not be affected at all. Um, and and pseudo here says so tired of COVID. We we feel you. I, yeah. I mean, it's uh, you know, staying in isolation for so long is. 
definitely taken a toll, I think, on everyone. And everyone's itching to be able to uh, go back to normal life. But of course, in order to do that, there are still a number of precautions we have to take to make sure there isn't a third or fourth wave um, of COVID. So, you know, we got to play it safe. Right. And um, yeah, so the f- the fourth one on the list is inoculation works. And so inoc- have you heard of inoculation? Inoculation? Isn't that just another term for vaccination? S- sort of, yeah. So um, I'll give you a little history on this one. The, during the smallpox, uh, smallpox epidemic that swept across North America from 1775 to 1782, um, revolutionary war soldiers took an unusual approach to protecting themselves from the virus known as uh, variola major. So, uh, and this, this is what we, so in a process called inoculation or also known as variolation, they took virus loaded material from an infected person's smallpox. Um, and, uh, this word is pustule, which is a small pustule, blister okay. or pimple that contains pus. Um, and, uh, they carved an incision into the flesh of a healthy soldier and they rubbed it in. So, you know, basically what we're starting yeah. to do with vaccinations where we, we take it, we, in, we insert in our body. Only like a hundred times more sanitary. Yeah. 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 A hundred <laughs> times. Yeah. So, and this, so this concept of vaccination is it named after the, the Latin word for cow or vaca. This was, and that oh, was wow. Born. Yeah. Okay. So another, like uh, when you brought up, um, the Latin word for, what was it again? Crown. Like why we call the coronavirus, the coronavirus. Right. It's, the Latin word for crown is Corona. Right. So, yeah. So some cool, uh, naming origins. Um, and the fifth one being don't blame the stick and uh, you know, don't, don't blame the sick. I said stick, don't blame the stick, (laughs) but, um, it said, you know, we should, we should be focusing on collaboration on beating this virus, uh, as a community, um, social distancing, wearing face masks and all the, that good measure, even after like this MRNA vaccination, I believe there's another still, like you said, John. Yeah, to... there still there still should be a time period where those are are enforced, but eventually it will get to a point where they can slowly lift um, these restrictions. Right, and then um, so in the, the sixth one means just this will this can end, you know, with our advancement in technology and medicine, um, the way we're a- we're able to handle this um, pandemic, we should be much more better with the with our sort of tools we have at hand to attack it. So, you know. That's sort of the positive note at the end. Is that... I think I'm like you. You mentioned um, uh, the mRNA, right? And I think it's I think it's really great that we've we've got more research on that front because you know in the future, um, as it, as Ryan said, like this um, this isn't the only pandemic that's happened in history. Maybe in the next ten uh, or, or twenty years, there may be another pandemic. And but we will have the tools ready to go. We can you know we'll manufacture that vaccine and and, and get it out in no time. Uh, so I think it's uh, that's a, a once again, as you mentioned, a, a really positive note. Yeah. So that's like looking forward post COVID, and um, so now this article, this other article, which I'm going to go into, is what will life? So this is the title, I guess, I began with. What will life be like after the coronavirus pandemic ends? Um, and mm. so, uh, uh, let me check one second. I oh so. This uh, from this article, the, uh, the author interviewed, uh, I think six experts, but I wrote down four of them because the other two sort of repeated what some of the other experts said. So I picked four sort of different uh, outtakes on on this. Oh, sorry, three. I reported th- uh, three from what they uh, said. So the first one being John Barry, who is the author of The Great Influenza: uh, The Story of the Deadliest Pandemic in History, and. Um, 
so his take on on it. So I want to sort of get, like get uh, what you think also, John, on these uh, sort of you know okay, expert, you know, uh, like what they think is going to happen, or maybe if chat wants to chime in on what they think will happen. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, jump in. Yeah, so I sort of thought this would be kind of full uh, interactive one. But so John Barry, let's sort of give it a little summary is uh, what he said will happen is, so if vaccines are effective and immunity lasts for several years, and if we have broad uses of cheap rapid antigen tests that can um, basically assure safety for for everyone around um, people, for I guess for people around other people, uh, Barry would see more people working from home, more work from teledoc services, and a big impact on small, and it's going to impact small businesses probably the most. Um, and albeit, uh, I would say it would affect them in a, in a harm, I think, a, like not to be negative, but like in a, in a worse way than it would affect bigger companies like Google, Facebook, Amazon, or not even that, like in the food industry, you know, in and out, you know, all those other big, big food industries, um, big food company names. And then he also says that if virus remains, Barry could also uh, see changes in housing market where people live and work um, from the comfort of their own, ho uh, of their own homes. And um, and he also mentioned that the interior design of buildings would change uh, post pandemic, <laughs> which is interesting. I, I wonder I wonder if there's something like deeper. Um, and he said there would be more cars and less mass transit, which I'm all for. In the uh, you know in California, I think. Uh, more cars uh, more cars but less mass transit why, like, why more cars though uh, I'm, I, that's what I thought about too I'm like I don't why did he why would he say you know more cars if we're all staying oh he home? said he, oh so the author the yeah. author said more cars no no not me yeah yeah oh okay oh, well I mean it, 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 it sort of makes sense though because mass transit like in the name right it relies on the fact that there's a high volume of people who need to go to certain oh. locations in the city repeatedly, right? That's right. Um, but uh, uh, but I, I think the point makes it because if there's less people for mass transit, more people will kind of uh, independently um, decide to, you know, maybe take a motorcycle or a, or a car. Oh, it looks like Suda here has a, um, uh, I think something to add here. So I think it will be different for a bit. The hardest part I feel will be hard to determine when to lift the mandates. That's a very excellent point. Uh, too long and the population gets irritated, but too short and it isn't effective. Uh, more cars because yeah okay so pseudo also uh, latched onto it less large travel more personal very very true right um, so right. so yeah we we don't know exactly where that mandate will will end i mean we've seen how these mandates work right uh, the the american people have spoken like they don't like uh, uh you know uh, some of the harsh restrictions that uh, the rest of europe or the rest of the world have enforced like not like i mean here at least uh, uh we don't have the curfews yet or uh, uh or any of that stuff but uh at that, uh, I mean, other places, you can't even step outside. You, you can't even so much as open the front door. Right, so. like what happened in Italy with the, with the yeah. real shutdown. Like, yeah. they weren't able to leave their... They... And they had, they had a very, very um, absolute tragedy. Yeah, the, yeah. the number of lives lost. Right. But, but yeah, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, more cars because more people are going to want to have their own cars to, to tra uh, travel. And they don't want to go right. to, like, the BART, for example, to, right. to take that... Or like any think, major uh, train station, like in New York, I, you know, all, all those mass transits. I, I think it's also like kind of stigmatized too, because like, you know, the moment like you, you think like a lot of uh, regulations or guidelines, like don't, you know, 
get a bunch of people in a very small area. But that's exactly what mass transit is, isn't it? Like you yeah. sit in a bus with all these people and, and uh, you know, same with like metro stations or um, other forms of mass transit. So I think a, a part of that a reason for more personal transit is uh, um, the stigma. Like there's an, a, a growing stigma for that kind of stuff. Right. And uh, yeah, so that's John Barry's take. Now let's go ahead and move on to Catherine Hirschfield, who is a medical anthro uh, anthropologist at the University of Oklahoma, author of Gangster States, Organized Crime, Klepto uh, Kleptocra Kleptocracy, and Political Collapse. Oh, kleptocracy. Okay. Oh, kleptocracy. Okay, yeah, <laughs> what John said. And um, <laughs> so Catherine believes that there will be an increase in political division and increase in economic inequality in the U.S. and elsewhere. Um, she also says, if the vaccine doesn't does control the virus, our post-COVID world would be a post-pandemic world, as there will still be other virus threats. Which I agree with that second point that she brought up. That even though we're we're done with COVID, if we are like it, we would be done with COVID, there is still now we should really wake up and say, okay, you know, in 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 uh, we, we should have a better response to sort of these pandemics. So yeah, uh, and it's absolutely. sort of going to be uh, it's going to be a post-pandemic. Uh, world, which, yeah, I agree. But yeah, what, are your, what are your thoughts, John? I think, so I, I really like that point where, uh, like, okay, now we know, like, we need to be better prepared for these kinds of pandemics. Like, just as how the U.S. has, like, a number of sort of, like, national strategies in place, like, for, for defense, uh, uh, you know, in case, like, a, a foreign nation attacks, um, there should be, like, a national strategy for pandemics. Like, the moment there's confirmation, like, you know, there's a chain of command, and we immediately implement these measures. Like, no mm -hmm. ifs, ands, or buts. Like, you just go for it. Because the, the more time you let this pandemic fester and grow, the harder or, or near impossible it is to um, attack it. And both, both of the authors you mentioned have made excellent points about the economic inequality. I think that's something we see uh, a lot these days. I think Amazon, especially because so many people are staying at home, mm -hmm. have been you know, reaping a lot of money. Uh, a lot of smaller businesses are dying. And, yeah. and uh, a lot of analysts have pointed out that the disparity between the lower class and upper class has been growing uh, uh, quite quickly. And it's been exacerbated by, these, uh, by the current conditions. Right. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a great point you brought up, uh, John, about the smaller businesses, I feel like will be impacted the most. And um, she also brings up like political division, um, like an increase in political division. Um, I would say at the beginning of post, uh, uh, I guess, pre COVID sort of, oh, no, I'm sorry, uh, like the middle of COVID, people were sort of coming together, you know, I think we were trying to fight it off, right. And, and, and trying to stick together. Um, but a lot of things has happened. And um, so I, I think it's interesting that, yeah, like an increase in, uh, in political division would, I mean, I hope, hope for the best, you know, <laughs> can't really say. Right. Much about but it. I, I totally understand. Like um, you, you mentioned political division. I mean, uh, if you think about it, uh, the whole uh, uh, coronavirus is also sort of an effective, um, it, it can be weaponized against an enemy political party if used properly. I, I mean, you could um, easily, one party can say the other one mismanaged things, or the other party can say, well, you guys didn't do enough to help. And, and it's, it's a very divisive um, issue. But mm -hmm. I think, you know, that's, as you mentioned, that's already on top of some existing, um, some existing problems uh, that we might uh, currently see. Um, but uh, I, it's interesting to hear the political divide. I haven't really thought about that too much. I'm I think both of us have been a little like I think we can see the economic effects uh, a lot more immediately. Yeah. No. Yeah. For sure. Um, and so the th uh, the third uh, author, or I guess the oh, third before you go, pseudo says that 
uh, COVID has become severely political, which I think, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, uh, yeah. The fact that I think it's just in the U.S., the, the skepticism towards a lot of the pre-established science of COVID is, is alarming. I, I think it's very disconcerting uh, um, to see that uh, because I don't, I don't think, like, you, you look at Europe, um, you don't see as many people who are, um, you know, anti-vax or, or, you know, they, they don't believe in a lot of the science behind it, whereas here in the U.S., um, uh, you know, there's just so many people who are, are willing to question these guidelines or to um, just wave them outright. All right. Um, yeah. So I, I guess we'll go into the last expert uh, that said that, uh, and she talks um, about schooling. So she's a sociologist at the Indiana, Indiana University, Bloomington. Um, and did I say her name already? Anna Mueller? Oh, I don't think you said the name. Okay. Yeah. Good catch. Good catch. A- yeah. Anna Mueller. And so Mueller says that all, uh, for, for school, Online teaching can be a tool that can make classrooms more accessible, particularly for students with anxiety or living with significant pain since they can now just turn on the camera and join a class from the comfort of the homes. Now, I first read this and thought about, wait, I don't really see that um, for, uh, I guess, high school and lower, so like from K to 12. Um, I could see this maybe in college when you're away from home or like you can have the opportunity to, I guess, to to leave and go somewhere else to study your, you know, study education. Um, so I'm assuming she's talking from a standpoint of the university because she's a sociologist at the university and talking about college students. Um, but if, th- if this was like talked about high school students and, and K through eight, I would disagree with this. Um, and the reason why You're saying like the, the anxiety component or the, um, or just be, uh, being easy, I guess, uh, cl- uh, how, how classrooms are more accessible online or even uh, if the student's living with anxiety or like significant pain because they're living in, um, I'm picturing like they're living with, like, like she said, anxiety or significant pain where they're always going to be home and there's no way for them to escape that environment, if that makes sense. I, I see your argument, but I think it. I think well, I, I'm willing to argue the other way. Like if you if you let me play devil's advocate. Here. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Um, you've reduced the barrier because because you know part of the things with having you know certain mental health conditions is is it's very hard to find the motivation to to do things we would find you know normal people would label as productive. And I think you know if you lower that barrier, you know like okay, well now I can just click a link and, and you know I can do my schoolwork from home. That might make things uh, easier. Of course. Uh, uh, Full disclaimer: Ryan and I are not uh, mental health experts. Uh, nope. By no means, you know, don't take this as this is sort of our cursory, mm-hmm. um, our superficial analysis of the the data at hand. So, um, as you can see, Ryan and I are just you know we're just having this kind of back and forth debate here. I, I'm playing devil's advocate. So basically, <laughs> whatever Ryan says, I'm I'm just trying to disagree with just to see what the other side of the coin is here. But um, but it's, it's interesting to hear that from uh, um, sociology. You said sociology? yeah, sociologist. Okay. Um. And, oh yeah, so then she also states that given the number of families that have lost jobs or income, uh, there will be an increase in children who have experienced depri- uh, deprivation, insecurity, and traumatic stress, which, yeah. That I can understand. That yeah. I 100%, you know, agree. Um, but yeah, going back to the first one, I, I guess I, I sort of see, yeah, the viewpoint of um, if the student is in that environment, then having that link just to click on is much, you know, much more beneficial than to... I guess go to school. But, 
if I were to play your side, mm -hmm. um, not everyone has the same kind of mental configuration, right? Like some people need that physical environment. Mm -hmm. They need the um, transition, almost like how um, when I was living closer to uh, our university, um, it, it forces my brain to focus more on schoolwork. But then going home, uh, you know, I, I mean, home is my time to relax. Like I don't think of schoolwork when I'm back at home. So, so you know, for some people, that that's even more crucial because different people yeah. um, operate differently. They learn through different means. So I, I'd say remote learning is definitely a, a mixed bag. But what I actually wanted to ask you, Ryan, mm -hmm. is um, with remote learning, it, it's kind of like shown how much money universities, you know, like we pay yeah. these exorbitantly high costs, right? That's a that's a really good, you, you, yeah, you hit something. And we can speak this from personal experience because of our situation. Right. I mean, we still pay the same, despite the fact that we're not going physically to a campus. We don't exactly. use any campus services. We don't use the ARC. I mean, you know, we don't use the, the, the gym facilities and all that. We don't use the um, counseling services. That also sort of, I guess, I, well, not everyone. I, I, yeah, never mind. I think we do use, some people do use that. A lot of people use that. I, I personally have used that. Um, but what are some other examples that, like, we, that we don't use with our tuition? It doesn't, uh, I, I, like, I guess some of the, uh, I, I'm not too certain about, uh, about specifics, the, but I, guess I, I the, mean, like a lot of the library, the, uh, the large, the large majority of research has shown, like many students are in agreement that we should mm. not be paying, um, for, or we should be receiving like refunds at refunds, best. Now, yeah. I know there's an argument that, um, yes, the universities have a lot of people that, that work under them. They need to be paid. And, and I see, I see, I understand that side of the argument, um, as well, although, uh, I'm I'm biased towards the idea that we should not have to pay, you know, like a full tuition for all this stuff, and, and yeah. because you know, as a student, but also uh, just because there's been a general upset over how over the years tuition for colleges has gone through the roof. Right, and and the the gap between how much you make per hour versus the amount of money you need to pay for tuition, the gap it's increasing, like. It, it, there's no inflation, right? right? I mean, there's no. I think the the U.S. is the only. I'm pretty sure the U.S. is the only nation in the world that does not have some policy that corrects for inflation. So it's almost like how a, you'll find a lot of. Uh, uh, I think people in our generation who are upset at hearing people from prior generations say like, "Oh, I I was able to pay off college with a you know with a job at, 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 in the service industry." But if you look at the rate of inflation, I mean, you know, of course, back then you could, but now, absolutely not. You it's, can't yeah. even, you know. So it's you only scratch the surface with the service. Right, job. It, it's a it's a hotly contested subject. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, but I would, you know, hundred percent say like, if there's some way to make college cheaper, you know, especially right now with virtual class, you know, th there should be some way to 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 implement that and. Uh, yeah, you know, like just to make tuition cheaper, but they're not, they're not doing it. <laughs> you know, it's, it doesn't yeah. make sense. It doesn't, uh, old habits die hard, huh? It doesn't, I mean, I, doesn't I understand that. Any sense. Um, what do you think about, uh, work? Like you mentioned one of those uh, experts you mentioned remote work. What do you, what do you think about the future of work and post COVID? That, and yeah, um, I, uh, like for if I was in that position to I was able to work remotely from home, especially if it's like a, a software position, yeah, I would hundred percent want that because I gotta save money on gas, I gotta save money on time spent driving back and forth. Um, there's a lot of money that's being saved. I say. I feel like. Um, and, and you I get feel a, like. 
one more thing, you gotta cook. You gotta cook at home. You have time to cook. You know your your own food. So oh, that's li- true. Maybe even live a healthier lifestyle because you'll be, you know, be able to cook. Uh, be able to cook for yourself. Because a lot of times, yeah. you know, I think this is actually an interesting point. Because a lot of times, when you're tired from work, you don't want to cook. You got to drive home. I'm gonna go. Oh, yeah. I'm gonna go to McDonald's to get you know a real quick stop of like a burger. You know. Right. Right. So. And one of my internships, I used to always go to like uh, this place that has like dim sum. I'd always I'd have so much like takeout, and then mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't feel that. I mean, I know it's not good for health. I mean, if you guys know anything about Chinese food, <laughs> you know we go uh, absolutely crazy, you know, over you know all the uh, oils and stuff. But it, it tastes so good. But um, do you feel okay? I, I know I'm I'm dragging this around, but but do you feel like software engineers like literally nothing really hurt? software engineers I, I mean like a lot of people yeah. did lose yeah, um, yeah. internship opportunities and, and work but but I feel like for most companies like software engineers are like oh so I just don't you know come into the office anymore. because it's, it's computer software right like you can as long as you have git access and, yeah. and network act like a, a company that's VPN Wi-Fi. I think you're fine yeah. yeah there you go that's that's the yeah extraordinary thing about software jobs is that now people are like oh wait now I can just work from home with you know with the software job all I need is Wi-Fi, and I already have that in my home. But also, I think what's what, what this pandemic's really sort of brought out is uh, our reliance on the internet, right? Like the okay. current state of the internet in the United States is not great. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a lot of large companies that have you know really monopolized the internet, and you know in terms of like you know social media, Google, Facebook, uh, you know what have it, mm-hmm. and they have. Uh, uh, there's also been. Um, I just lost my train of thought. Here. I guess our dependency on these big, big companies to use your technologies has well, increased. I mean, it's also alarming that uh, uh, these companies have so much power, you know, mm-hmm. over you know how consumers can access the internet and and data, uh, data, like right? The absolutely, of data think, that's out there just for free. I think yeah, a, a law got passed a couple of years back that said ISPs can sell um, your DNS data. Uh, so when you, uh, you know, when you do Google searches or any kind of like web search, it goes to a DNS server. Um, mm-hmm. if that's like an ISP related server, they can take that info and, um, sell it if they want to. Right. Um, but yeah, I think this is a wake up call. Like we, we should have some more regulations and uh, that's yeah. my opinion. That's yeah. my opinion. But as uh, we transition to being more dependent on the power of the internet, there needs to be ch- sort of, I would say changes in the way we regulate internet traffic, just as we regulate uh, you know, traffic, you know, driving or, 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 uh, you know, I guess in person, uh, right. Laws, right. You know, Absolutely. Th- there needs to be some type of adapt, uh, adaption. Is that even a word? Uh, we need to adapt. I would just say reform. Reform. Yeah. Yeah. So. Oh, definitely. Well, it looks like we're at the one hour, 30 minute mark. Yeah. I think, I think, I think this is the first time we've had a podcast go on for uh, a longer than an hour. Yeah. I mean, yeah, these topics are pretty, you know, Spicy. Very nuanced, uh, you know, very, uh, uh, very interesting to talk about, you know, I, I definitely, but um, yeah. also like I, we, we weren't planning to go to like to add the extra 30 minutes until mm. like our viewership rose, right? Like wasn't the plan, you know, once the audience like grew big enough, then we, you know, we'd stick around, but, but we, we got two viewers though. Yeah, that's, that's pretty nice. That's nice. I mean, it could, just, it could just be the both of us though. I mean, I, <laughs> I point out, because I we, both be have, we both have Twitch open, so... <laughs> But uh, but yeah, um, I think we'll go ahead and end it here. John, what do you say? Yeah, I think I think um, um, you know, we did a great, great job. I mean, I was able to cover the um, miRNA and uh, how it regulates COVID reproduction rates, as well as 
the spike proteins and their sort of uh, similarity to GP120, the HIV protein. And you were able to talk about uh, uh, some of these historical pandemics, what we've learned from them, uh, as well as uh, how some, prof- some experts think the future is going to look uh, post-COVID. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah, I think, we, uh, I think we really covered a lot of uh, amazing ground. Um, and you know, once again, Ryan and I are, are both very thankful um, for, those of, uh, for, for those of you that, uh, you know, such as Scotty and uh, Sudo that were able to um, drop by uh, and you know, contribute. Uh, we love being able to interact with you guys and learn new things, see different sides of the same issue. So uh, once again, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Yes, sir. So uh, yeah, so thank you guys for watching uh, this episode of OX2C podcast. Uh, we're going to upload this. Oh, and happy to- holidays. Oh, happy yes. holidays. Happy holidays. Um, to whatever you're <laughs> celebrating, hope you have a good time with your family, friends, loved ones, um, wherever you are in the world. And um, yeah, so we'll post, we'll go ahead and just post this on YouTube for people, for those of you that want to watch it again. But uh, <laughs> and um, stay safe. Don't yeah. forget to stay safe this season. Yes, sir. So thank you so much. Bye. Bye.